But it is very good to be with you here today uh, to worship God. The message that I, I wanted to share with you is one that is actually, it's very close to my heart. It's a, it's a passion that I feel like God has, has given me, uh, and it's a concern uh, that I have. Um, it's something that uh, gets me up in the morning and keeps me up at night. And I hope today that you'll see why that's the case and uh, that you will be challenged to, to think similarly. The, uh, the title of the message that I have today is, is called, Not a Christian. And the reason I title it that um, is one, because I, I kind of like to be provocative. Uh, I know it's a, it's a bad habit, um, but I like to, to say things that cause people to think. See that, um, go to that next slide. Uh, if, you, if you wouldn't mind going to Hezekiah chapter 2, verse 14, uh, I would appreciate that. See, I say not a Christian, not because I have a serious problem with the word Christian. I, if someone asked me, you know, like, are you a Christian? I, I would tell them yes, because there's a, there's, there's a certain function to a label. See, when you look at something in the grocery store, you look at the label, and the label's supposed to tell you about what's on the inside. But the issue and problem with labels is that they can be deceptive, right? You can have false advertising, and so a label can be very difficult. It can sound like a thing. It can look like a thing, but end up not actually being what you had purchased. It's interesting. I, I'm a pastor. Uh, I got ordained. Um, I went through that whole process, and it was, uh, well, uh, it, it, re it required a lot of prayer, um, both on my part, my family, and, and those who were trying to, to, to help me through this. And I, I, ha I find that, like, when I'm talking with people, telling them about, uh, oh, thank you, uh, telling them that I'm a pastor, it always has this kind of, like, weird effect on them. You know, they, it, there's this label pastor that when I mention, oh, yeah, like, I work as a pastor, they, they, they all of a sudden start acting differently, as though, like, I hadn't, like, known who they were before I told them that I was a pastor. They, they're, they, if they swear or do something, they go, oh, sorry, sorry. And it's like, well, look. <laughs> Be yourself. If you, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know the kind of life that I have and committed yourself to live the way that I live, I'm not going to like get upset if you're going to be yourself. I'm going to go to the next slide. There's no book in the Bible called Hezekiah. I'm sure some of you have noticed that, and you're just like, what is wrong with this guy? Where is he going? But it sounds like it's a book in the Bible, doesn't it? And so we all look, and it's just like, but that's a problem with the label. And I think that's a problem with this label of Christian, is that we slap it on anything, and all of a sudden it starts communicating to people something that I wonder if that communication reflects what's on the inside. It was in Antioch where the label Christian was first given, and it wasn't given by those people who were called Christians. It was given by Gentiles. Oh, the, the Christ-like ones, those in the Christ group of people. You know, it suggests uh, that, that also that this name being written in Acts 11.26, uh, uh, that it was generally used. So, so when they said Christians, they oh, oh, those Christians. It, I don't know if it was exactly derogatory, but it wasn't exactly a label of esteem either. It was more common for those Christians to refer to themselves as disciples, 
disciples of Jesus, students of Jesus, followers of him. See, anyone can be a Christian. The, the, the Roman Empire, when it, when it, when it became Christian, it, it mandated that citizens were also Christians, and it slapped that label on every person. There's no cost to being a Christian, per se. You just, you just say it. I'm a Christian. But there is a cost to discipleship. There's an absolute cost to discipleship. And if you do today, the passage we actually are going to look at is found in John 13, uh, 3 to 20. Uh, my, my hero theologian, uh, the guy that I look up to the most um, within, within history and, and tradition in the church is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Okay, he was a, a theologian uh, at the time of the Second World War. Uh, he was German. And uh, what, what I find so interesting about him is that like, he, he was in New York at the outset of the war. Um, he, had, he had essentially... Uh, um, gone against the, the, the state church uh, and, and was in seminary in New York. And when the war broke out, he felt like if, if he was going to be able to be a part of putting his country back together, he needed to be a part of its destruction. And so he went back to Germany during the war. Uh, he started an underground seminary um, and, and eventually actually participated in an attempt to assassinate Hitler. Some of his works are amazing, and I highly recommend that you, you check them out. Um, the one I'd like to, to address today uh, is called The Cost of Discipleship. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend that you do so. Uh, it is an amazing work. But in it, Dietrich Bonhoeffer addresses a, a passage in Luke 9, uh, 57 to 62. And, and maybe you're familiar with this passage it's, it's about uh, three people that Jesus meets along the way. It says, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. See, Jesus is walking along and someone comes out of the woodworks and says, Well, I'll, I'll follow you. And yet what Jesus' response suggests, as Bonhoeffer points out to us, is that this person didn't really consider what it meant to follow Jesus. Look, you're ready to follow me? I'm not sure where I'm sleeping tonight. Are you good with that? Is that what you're signing up for? Because if you're signing up for miracles and, and, and mighty things and all this stuff, like, that's not it. If you're signing up for prestige and, and, and status, well, that's not it. And it goes on, he says, to another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So the second guy, Jesus actually interacts with him. The first guy just comes out and says, look, I'll follow you. And Jesus is like, are you sure? And the second guy, Jesus actually invites him. He says, look, follow me. And his response is, okay, yeah, I'll do it. But I got to take care of this other stuff first. Jesus says, leave the dead to bury their, their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Bonhoeffer suggests that, that what Jesus is saying here is that if your obligations, if your responsibilities have priority over Jesus, then, then you can't claim to be a follower of Jesus. 
And lastly, he says, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And this last follower or would-be follower says, look, I'll follow you. I just, I just got to go and say goodbye to everybody else. Bonhoeffer says that, that this shows that this follower was trying to follow from a position of control. I'll follow you on the basis of these conditions. If we want to follow Jesus, it means that we have to know what it means to follow him. It means that we place the obligations of this world underneath of him. It doesn't mean that we shirk those duties. It doesn't mean that we ignore the responsibilities and obligations that we have been given because we've been given them by God. But what it means is, is they become subservient to the will of God. And lastly, we are not in control. We don't get to say, well, God, I'll do this if. Well, God, I know you're working if these things happen. Well, God, I don't like them. Well, God, don't you know what it's like there? Yeah, he does. We didn't ask you to think about it. He asked you to follow him. And are you willing to do that? Jesus says, anyone that will follow me must lose their life. Uh, and if they lose it, they will save it. Anyone that tries to save their life will lose it. It's a paradoxical statement, but it's absolutely true. I want to talk to you about the centrality of discipleship for the disciple of Jesus. For the Christian believer, discipleship is central. I, uh, I came across... I had this, this, this epiphany. Um, I feel that it was of God, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll let you um, discern that as well. I was reading, uh, I was going through the chapters of John 13 to 17 to kind of, to try and understand, you know, what it is it means to be a disciple of Jesus. When you look at this, this window of time, it is the end of his time on this earth with his disciples, and so what does he do in that situation? What does it look like? And, and I was reading in, the, in, in chapter 13, and I was just struck by what he was doing and, 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 and the implications therein. It's, it's a famous passage. It's the washing of the feet of the disciples. We'll go to the next slide. Before we go on, I want to tell you that I believe discipleship is central to the Christian faith for three reasons. Oh, I skipped a slide. Discipleship is spelled, or evangelism is spelled D-I-S, see, you got to put it back, otherwise I'm not going to be able to spell it. D-I-S-C-I-P-L-E-S-H-I-P. Okay, now you must be thinking, all right, this guy thinks he has a Kai as a book in the Bible, he doesn't apparently know how to spell evangelism. No, I know how to spell evangelism. There's proof there, okay? But I believe it's actually spelt as discipleship. God says, go therefore and make worship services. No. Go therefore and make church programs. Mm -mm. Go therefore and make disciples. Go therefore and make disciples. I believe discipleship is central for three reasons. First off, Discipleship is the process of sanctification. I believe that discipleship is the process of sanctification. That as I lead people to Christ, 
Christ is doing something in me and subsequently does something in them. Secondly, I believe that discipleship is a testimony of transformation. That I can tell someone all about the label, but if the inside doesn't reflect the label, then it doesn't matter what I tell them. It's good to share the gospel, but it's better to also be the gospel. That we have a message, but the message is the medium. The message is us. And lastly, I believe that discipleship, as I've said here, is the strategy of God's multiplication. That God wants to grow his kingdom, and he will do that, not through amazing preachers, not through awesome worship services, but through discipleship. And he has empowered and invigorated and, and given all of you the ability and the spirit to do just that. So let's look at uh, this passage, uh, John 13, 3 to 20. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash your, you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I, then your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, but when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. I think that uh, you look at this passage and, and it's... You read it, and, and, and I don't know about you, but I kind of wonder, okay, is this passage, is it descriptive or is it prescriptive? Like, do we all of a sudden need to set up regular, like, wash basins out front and, like, start washing each other's feet? Maybe. I don't know. I know that there's a lot of churches that actually practice this on a regular basis. I think, I believe that... It might have something more with being suggestive of the kind of relationships that we need to have. You look at feet washing in that time in first century Palestine, it was a disgusting job. It was a gross job that no one wanted. The, 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 the servant that everyone kind of hated and picked on got to wash feet. 
It was a job that was left for as almost like a punishment. Okay, now you need to go and wash the feet. And Jesus, the guy who has led his disciples and done these amazing, miraculous things, proven and been proven that God said about him, this is my son. This Jesus takes off his outer garments, puts water into a basin, and he begins to wash the feet of all of his disciples, including the one who would betray him. It was this passage that I was looking at, this idea of, of Jesus washing feet, that, that I, it struck me that that process of sanctification, that process of being made holy, being made into the likeness of Christ, being given that status that Christ has, that is all about relationship with Jesus. And, and, and so Jesus, as he washes their feet, he's doing it out of relationship. But isn't it interesting? You look at, at uh, Peter's responses. Oh. So one of the ways in which that I kind of illustrate this idea of sanctification is, is looking at Jesus as light. Jesus refers to himself as light. In, uh, in John uh, chapter 3, it says the true light, or in chapter 1, sorry, verse 9 and 13, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So Jesus comes into this world as light, and we see in John 3 that, that those who want to reveal that what they have done is of God step into the light. There's something about being in relationship with Jesus that re reveals what's in our heart. And as those things are revealed in our hearts, we deal with them and surrender them to God. And this is actually a process that we go through, and it's the process of knowing Jesus and having him know us. But it's also the process that we are supposed to bring and encourage and challenge others to go on. And we do that often not by telling them what to do, but by showing them what has been done in us. You look at, at, at Peter's responses, and his first one is, Lord, do you wash my feet? Lord, you, Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Holy One, you wash my feet? No, 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 no. The servants do that. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Look, if I don't wash you, then nothing can. Peter, being calm, collected, and reasonable, of course, goes all the way to the other side. He says, well, don't just wash my feet. Wash all of me, my hands and my head as well. So I think this first response, it shows us, you know what? Peter, he doesn't necessarily understand what Jesus is doing. He doesn't really get what Jesus is actually doing for him. And Jesus says, look, you're going to understand this later. He's looking at Jesus and saying, Jesus, you are this, and putting him kind of like in a box. Have you ever put God in a box? Have you said, God, if you're God, then you'll act this way? God, if you are who you say you are, then these things will occur. Peter's saying, God, if you're God, you act and function like this. Jesus says, look, you don't get to tell me how I do my job. 
And secondly, he goes, Lord, not my feet, but also my hands and my head. We want control in this process of discipleship, in this process of sanctification. We want to be able to tell God, look, this is what I want to deal with in my life. And God says, no, we're going to deal with what I want to deal with in your life. And it's crazy that when you look at the situations uh, in your life that surround you, how they actually begin to connect to what's going on in your heart. And how there's actually not necessarily a disconnection between what God is doing in your heart and what God is allowing to happen in your life. And we've kind of put God into a box, so sometimes we get so blinded by what's going on in our life that we, that we ignore or, or disregard what he's trying to do in our hearts. This thing about Jesus being uh, our relationship. I was reading this morning, um, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Our development, our sanctification, all of it begins when we say that I, I can't do it. Hebrews 12, 2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. It's simply looking to Jesus, who has established our faith and is perfecting us within it. It's not what we do. It's who we know. And that, that's it. Well, maybe not quite it. Because there is this thing I think is called the testimony of transformation. Have you ever driven somewhere where like the roads are really nice? Like anyone driven on the new bridge? The Champlain? Yeah. Driving on the road, it's like, it's so smooth. It feels so good. Okay, but then you get to the rest of Montreal, right? And there is nothing smooth or good about driving in the rest of Montreal. If you tell people about our amazing infrastructure, maybe you would point to the Champlain Bridge. You can't talk about how great it is to drive and how enjoyable it is to drive in Montreal. And like, you know, Montreal is bad, but I don't know if you've been on the back roads of Saskatchewan, but it's actually worse. You can tell someone something. You can have a label, but there is no, if there's no reflection, if there's no evidence of what's on the inside of that label, then you, that label's worthless. Jesus comes to his disciples. He says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. One of my favorite things to say about church is that all the problems in church have to do with people. Like, if you just got rid of all the people, you would have no more problems. But the thing about who Jesus is is that the testimony of what he has done in your life has everything to do with the way in which that you interact with people. And I'm not talking about the likable ones. I'm not talking about the ones that do nice things for you. Jesus changes your heart, and that changes your ability to deal with people who are difficult to deal with. And I'm thankful for that because I believe, you know, it's, it's Christ in my wife's life that allows her to be married to me. Scripture is filled with this reality. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, 12 to 16. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Look, you were separate from God. You were in your sin. But now in Christ Jesus, in relationship with Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You are in relationship with Jesus because of what he has done. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Look, you didn't just become one with God, but that actually everyone who is one with God, you are now also one with. And you can't say to your brother or sister, you know what? I don't, I don't think we can be together. Because the whole reason that Jesus came was not just to be with him and God and the Holy Trinity in that community, but that we would all be there together. The testimony of transformation occurs, one, first with us and God, but then it's absolutely reflected in the way in which we look as a community. There's other, other evidences, and, and you look in Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23, you know, this is a famous one, the fruit of the Spirit. And, and the interesting thing I like about the fruit of the Spirit, like for me, when I read that list, you know, uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, I think, well, I've got, I've got that one. I'm okay with this. Uh, but maybe not this one over here. And that, that the fruit of the Spirit is not, you know, these are not all fruits of the Spirit. That the fruit, singular, is all of these things. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, it says that we're ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. That God says, look, what relationship with me is all about? Look at my children. Look at them. Look at how they get along. Look at how they serve and how they care for this world. That's what it means to be in relationship with me. Is our label reflecting what's inside? 1 Peter 3 tells us that we need to be able to give a defense for the hope that we have. Look, what's in you should be recognizable to other people, and they should ask you, hey, why are you like that? What's different about you? But I think probably one of the best uh, explanations of this testimony of transformation is in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How can we tell people that we know Jesus if we don't love each other? How can we tell people about the power of Jesus and what he can do, the bondage he can set us free from if we're still enslaved by it? It's, it's a crazy thing to think that, that I care about your salvation. I care about the way in which that on that day when you stand before the judgment seat of God, I want you to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And I hope and I'm encouraged to know that you care similarly for me. And so that, that, that means something about our relationship. That means that the way in which that we interact, that, that, that I might come to you and I might say, hey, this is... This is not good. These things that you're doing, they're leading to your destruction. They've come between you and God, and they've come between you and me, and we need to figure that out. And to be willing to suffer the consequences of that conversation. It's the example that Jesus gave us. He got down and did the dirty job, the gross job, because he wanted us to see that, like, you're worth these things. You're worth going through this suffering. Discipleship is a strategy of multiplication. I said this before, the, the Great Commission is not to make 
great worship services. I, I love coming together and, and worshiping with you. I love being here and sensing the, the presence of the Holy Spirit and lifting up my voice to my God. But as we make ourselves presentable for Sunday morning worship, what is it that does that? Is it what we wear? Is it, is it what we say or how we act? Or is it how we have been obedient? It is the status of our hearts and, and the way in which that we have been interacting with our God in the days prior to. Verse 17, it says that if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Knowing is not enough. Knowing is not enough. In fact, knowing is actually going to incur more judgment. If my son makes a mistake and, 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 and he doesn't know better, I'm upset. I'm like, okay, well, you know what? This, this is not good. Don't do this anymore. If he makes that mistake again, I'm, I'm, I'm more frustrated because I've told him, you should know better. You should know. We just talked about this. And with my son, sometimes it can't be that quick. We can talk about it. I can turn around, turn back, and they just did it again. And I know that I'm no different with my heavenly father. What does obedience look like in your life? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Jesus does this, and he says in 15, For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. I don't know that we need to all start uh, rolling up our sleeves, getting down and washing one another's feet. When you look and understand about the, the, the implications of what feet were in that culture and in that mindset, this is a position of intimacy, to be so close to someone's feet in that way. Have we, have we lowered ourselves in a way that allows us to help and to encourage and to challenge people in the most intimate of ways? deep in the life of who they are and what they're doing? Do we know about what goes on in the darkness of people's hearts? Do we have the kinds of relationships where we can uh, uh, run into each other in that way? Do our relationships extend past our morning service? We talk about these kinds of relationships often in church, but, but really they're discipleship. That's what they are. And it's what we need to be doing. Discipleship is is central into it by Christ in the community of God and with God. That within the Holy Trinity, we have been brought into it by Christ. And the way in which that we function in it has everything to do with discipleship. Everything to do with the way in which that we encourage others, teach others, bring others to Christ. Verse 20 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Jesus came so that he could implant in you himself, so that he could take you and place you within that community of God. And then he sends you out. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
And I love how he finishes that passage in Matthew. And lo, I am teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. And we come here and we want to be close to Christ. We want to, we want to know him and make him known. We want to worship him. We want to, we want to feel his presence. But, but Jesus promises us, he tells us that if we really want to be with him, then we need to be with him where he's at. And the place that he's at is in discipleship. We'll bring up uh, where two or three are gathered in my name. Doing what? Being a disciple is not about a label, it's about a person. Uh, not that long ago on Facebook, I don't know about you, I, I really despise Facebook, it's the worst. Uh, if you like, there's too many reasons, I, I'll get sidetracked. But I was on Facebook, fortunately or unfortunately, and uh, someone posted a quote on there. They, uh, uh, the quote essentially, I'm paraphrasing, um, but the quote essentially talked about the fact that, you know, in, in, there's parts of the world where uh, being a disciple of Jesus um, and proclaiming that, doing, doing that in a public sense um, will actually get you thrown into jail or worse. Uh, it has implications for the health and safety of your family. And then this morning, as we were singing, uh, I exalt thee, as we were singing, we exalt thee, I just, I couldn't help but think about the fact that, like, we could do that here without fear. And so this, this quote on Facebook was saying, you know, there's these places in the world where being a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, uh, you have to take into consideration your health and safety and the health and safety of your family. And then here in North America, you know, going to church is kind of like counterbalanced with whether or not I take my kids to soccer practice. And I got to admit, I, I, can the, I can appreciate the sentiment that that, that quote is trying to uh, address. But I, I got to admit, I have a real problem with it. Be, not because I don't recognize the, the, the pain and suffering that brothers and sisters in places like Iran and Iraq and Saudi Arabia and China are going through. But that... They are fighting a spiritual war and they are doing so as God has presented them and led them and placed them. And, and, and I want to tell you that so are we. That every moment, every small choice that we make has an implication. There is a spiritual war going on for your thoughts and your mind. And this is not necessarily one of, of, of like, uh, there's not a demon under every rock. But there is separation from Christ, and, and, and there are things that he has asked us to do, and he's set aside for us specifically to do. This morning, I want to share something with you. Um, I've been blessed to be in relationship uh, with, uh, with a brother, um, Andrew Mark. Uh, I think you might have I've met him, and uh, he's spoken here before, before I believe. Um, but he has connected me with some of his friends from Saudi Arabia um, uh, vicariously. So I, I connect with them vicariously through Andrew, and he just lets me know what's going on. And there's been this one brother, uh, Adam, who has been discovered uh, that he is a Christian and has been using his business and funds as a front for Christian activities, uh, smuggling Bibles and, and those kinds of things. So Adam wrote a letter. 
He says, I am asking you not to be disheartened. Since the dawn of time, life remained the same. Life is estrangement and nostalgia, reunions and separations, tears and laughter. The joyous moments happen when you, we get together, while the saddest ones happen when we part ways. Yes, how sad are the tears of separation. My eyes are filled with those tears, but I'm holding them back. It is hard to bid farewell to those who walked with me in this journey, those people who are best, family and friends, anyone could ask for. After this journey, I am forced to bid my beloved in Christ farewell. This is happening because the courts want to punish me for my love for Jesus Christ. But do they not know that I am willing to sacrifice everything, including my own life and that of my children, for the sake of Christ? I'm counting the moments as I say goodbye. Time is suddenly slowing down while I wait for my trial in court. These moments are the most difficult ones I have lived. I'm reaching the end of my path, and this departure will force me to bid farewell to all my loved ones. Indeed, I fear that my farewell is far more than just a few days. Altogether, the years could be numbered, but for me, it will probably feel much longer. The court is going to punish me for doing no wrong. I'm being imprisoned for the love and faith I have. I'm ready to, to bear any punishment in order to prove to them that I'm on the right path that they may deprive me from being with my loved ones, but they will never be able to deprive me from being with my Savior. This court will not frighten me with their jail. Yes, they try to imprison, imprison and kill Christ, but he was raised from the grave to prove to them that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Even then they did not understand because they were evil. This court will not frighten me with its unjust prisons because I trust in the sovereign hands of my Savior. Yes, I seek not the, the short temporal life. I am only seeking after the eternal one. One of God's greatest blessings that you and I are of the same family, and I am proud of you. The world dislikes farewells because we hate to leave our loved ones. Unlike the lost in the world, we are secured in the beloved and we love one another. This is why we will meet again. This is God's plan. Do not grieve this temporary separation. Finally, I say to you all, may the Lord keep and bless you. How much I wish to meet with every one of you, but we will meet when we gather in heaven with God. God is our refuge, and I will surrender everything to him. I ask of you one request. Pray for my wife and children, as they will miss me terribly, and so will I. It's not hard to make disciples. And we have absolutely the most opportunity to do so. What are you? And maybe you don't know how to make disciples, and that's okay. Ask someone to help you, to show you, because that's discipleship. It's what God wants to do in your life and he, what he wants to do through your life to save this world. As he does that, he will make you pure and clean in the likeness of his son. It will bring a testimony of what he is capable of. And it's how he wants to grow his kingdom. So I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you. Make disciples. Ask God, who can I be showing what it means to follow Jesus? Ask God, who can help me follow Jesus better? I think this is a prayer that God absolutely wants to answer. Let's pray. Jesus, you have a plan for our lives. If only we will surrender ourselves to it. I ask you that you would help us to set aside the many distractions that try and pull us away from you. That you would give us strength and endurance to overcome the sufferings that you've put before us. That in all these things we might glorify you.
God, I pray that, that your voice would be uh, so clear to us. That we would know that uh, you love us. And we would stand firm in that. That we would allow that to identify us, to shape us. God, that we would help people to know and to understand the same. Because if nothing else, this world needs your love. Just as we need your love. So God, we are broken. We are small. We are ineffective. But we are yours. So use us, God. And glorify your name. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.